All right, it's been a couple of weeks in break. Anyways, we're going to be diving into an interesting topic here today, which is why can't we add books to the Bible? Is it true that uh, our faith as we know it today was made up by Constantine and evil conspirators at the Council of Nicaea and a, a lot of different weird ideas that are floating out around there. So I hope you stick with us today and uh, I hope this content is building up for your faith and encouraging for you uh, as a Christian or maybe if you're non-Christian and you have questions about it, that, that this may be a little clarifying to you. That's what we're going to be jumping into today. Please stay with us. All right, so I, I got to be honest. When, when uh, there's a, a, a film that came out uh the Jesus uh, Da Vinci Code, Da Vinci Code film. Uh, I remember there was a lot of backlash from the Christian community around that uh, film and the book um, because they felt like this might influence the way people view uh, Christianity. And I, I at that time thought it was maybe a little overzealous on the Christian part of things. I thought, who is really going to believe that uh, a fictional writer is actually giving you accurate history? And Dan Brown, the writer of these things, he he actually played around with this idea. He's you know first he started out saying this is this is fictitious, this is made up by me. Then he started to say ah, I kind of believe it, and you know that type of stuff. I think to sell his books a little bit, but um, I, I was a bit skeptical that this would influence the way people actually view Christianity. And lo and behold, um, even some atheists I listen to today hold to this idea that. Jesus uh, was just made up, his divinity was made up at the Council of Nicaea and so on and so forth, where I first heard it popularized in the Dan Brown books, a fictional book. Uh, so we're going to be diving a little bit into uh, Emperor Constantine, the Council of Nicaea. And uh, this question I got the other day was this, why can't we add to the Bible? And, and the assumption was that the Council of Nicaea is where they decided on what books would be in the Bible. Um, they left some books out, like the Gospel of Judas and Thomas and Mary and so on and so forth. Uh, so we're going to be diving into this a little bit here today, uh, talking about the Council of Nicaea and so on and so forth. Uh, so let's start with this. Was it Constantine and the Council of Nicaea that shaped the Christian faith as we know it today? Um, if you know, don't know about the Council of Nicaea, it happens 325 AD after Christ. There were around eight, 1,800 bishops that were invited to be a partakers of this council. Only 300 bishops showed up to the council, uh, most of whom had experienced severe persecution just around 20 years before this council is taking place. I mean, the outlawing of, of Christian persecution only happened in 312 AD, if I remember correctly. So this is 325, just a few years after the Christian church has experienced severe persecution and punishment for the fact alone that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God, and they are followers of Christ. So take that into account. If you're thinking about these things, take that into account. Do these people gathered there at 325 AD strike you as people who would be just willing to give up uh, Christian doctrines for the sake of some emperor who told you to do so? 
on and off for the past 300 years, the, the church has been persecuted, the people have been killed, the people have been hunted down, uh, Christian writings and Christian scriptures have been burned on the street, and uh, they've watched their families die rather than to refuse to confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Do these people strike you as people who would be easily swayed to just follow the whims of this new emperor, Constantine, and do what he wishes when it comes to their faith? And when you start to think about this logically, I think a lot of the stuff, the assumptions, a lot of the popular ideas that we have around the Council of Nicaea, they start to fall apart pretty quickly. Now, thinking about that, um, the, the fact that is that while many want to say that Constantine used the Council of Nicaea to uh, influence the belief of Christianity, uh, when you actually check out Constantine's opinion about the Council of Nicaea, he was not happy with the end result of the of the council. Really, his hope, his idea, I think political in nature, was that, you know, if, if we're going to be united as an empire and we see more and more people come to this faith, we should find a compromise where everyone can agree so that we can be politically and sociologically united. And so his... Uh, his desire from this council was that they would come to a compromise on Christian doctrine uh, so that they could be sociologically and politically uh, united around this new compromised faith. Uh, he did not want one side to condemn the other as heresy. And when you look at the Council of Nicaea, you see that's exactly what happened. Arius and his followers and their view of Jesus Christ and him not being divine was condemned as heresy. And what you see later on in Constantine's life, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, he was baptized by Arius himself. And then he would give opportunities to Arius and his followers to be in positions of influence and, and and keep preaching their views, even after the Council of Nicaea has decided that that view of Jesus Christ not being divine is heretical. And so that this is really what we're talking about. Uh, today, the Arian view is alive and well in, in a cult called uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they view Christ as not being God, but rather the first and greatest creation, that he is not uh, the creator, but rather he's the first and, and, you know, first creation. And so that's where we see Arianism alive and well today. It's simply not true. Um, from what I've researched, it's simply not true that Constantine uh, made Christianity uh, the main religion of Rome. I think up until this point, it was quickly becoming apparent that more and more people were becoming followers of Christ. And in, in 312 AD, the emperor outlawed persecution of Christians. Uh, the Jewish authorities could no longer kill them. The Romans could no longer kill them. I think he outlawed uh, crucifixion as well. Um, but I don't see, I, I've heard it said so many times that Emperor Constantine was the guy who made Christianity the official religion of Rome. Yes, he converted to it, but I've yet to see uh, a snippet, and I'm, I'm, I'm well. I welcome the fact if you if you can prove me wrong, if you can show me a historical source where you can find this in. But I've I've yet to find a source where Emperor Constantine says, "Now this is the official religion of Rome." Um, I've I've yet to see that. Now, what did the Council of Nicaea actually do? 
because there's so many different ideas about the Council of Nicaea, so many conspiratorial ideas. What did the Council of Nicaea revolve around? Um, this might be surprising to some people uh, because this idea is very popular. Uh, the Council of Nicaea did not decide what books should be in the Bible and what books should not be in the Bible. Um, the Council mainly revolved around tackling uh, disagreement within the church or those who would call themselves followers of Christ. The conflict revolved around the divinity of Jesus Christ, the status of Jesus Christ. Uh, was he a part of the Godhead or was he just a great teacher? Was he just a prophet of God or was he actually God? And so there are these two terms that were floating around, uh, heterosius and, oh, man, I know I'm slaughtering these terms. Like, that's the thing. I'm stuck on an island. This is called a stranded Baptist because of that fact. <laughs> I only read this stuff. I only read these words. So I have no idea how to pronounce these words. Uh, homeosis? Hom Homoousios. <laughs> See? Uh, heter Heterousios. And hom Homoousios. Homoousius and heterousius. Anyways, <laughs> I'm blessing, man. I'm uh, like, I only read these words on paper. I don't have a, a fancy smancy theologian who can tell me how to say these words. <laughs> uh, there's no, there's a, a, a difference in meaning there. And so the main, the main conflict revolve around this. Is Jesus Christ God or not? Did he share in the Godhead with the Father or not? Now, there were three groups that came to this council. Remember, there are 300 guys that came to this council. There are three groups that came to this council. Um, there's Arius and his followers. There was the Orthodox group. They called themselves that. And then there was Eusebius and his followers who had their own perspective to bring to the table. And by the end of this council, I think it was Eusebius and three other guys who shared his view. Uh, or two other guys. So... 1% of the people there decided to go with Arius and his view. There were three guys in the whole council of 300 people that agreed with Arius that Jesus was not God. And so at the end of the council, they were condemned as heretics and not following biblical teaching. Now, the Orthodox group uh, and Eusebius and his followers, they were in agreement that Jesus Christ was divine. He was a part of the Godhead. But Eusebius he didn't like to to use the word that they were using, homo homeosis. <laughs> oh, home. Let, let me just spell it out for you. Okay, that's all I got. H o m o o u s i o s. And so, if you're watching this and you think I'm putting myself as some sort of expert out there, just want to let you know that's not true. Uh, I'm no expert in biblical languages. I love to study the Bible. I love to read what other experts have to say. And so <laughs> I'm not putting myself as an expert on any of these things. Like you can just see with my pronunciation of this very uh, <laughs> important word in church history. Um, so the Orthodox Jew, uh, the or not the Orthodox Jews, the Orthodox people there and Eusebius and his followers, they were in agreement that Jesus was divine, that he was a part of the Godhead, uh, but but Eusebius didn't want to use that word, homo, 
<laughs> you know, you know what word I'm trying to say. Um, because he had noticed that this word had been used by modalists to say that God was not three persons. He was one person uh, and three playing three different roles. Basically, they didn't believe in the Trinity. They didn't believe that God was one God and three persons. They believed that he was one person and he played on three different roles. He put on three different masks the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Council of Nicaea revolved mainly about the divinity of Jesus Christ. And if you read the Confession of Faith that came out from the Council of Nicaea, the Nicaean Confession of Faith, you will see that it mainly revolves around the birth of Jesus. Yes, that he was human, but his, you know, he was born, but not created, and so on and so forth. You'll see that the Council of Nicaea mainly revolved around the divinity of Jesus. All right, so... Did the Council of Nicaea decide which books should be included in the Bible and then take some books and kick them out of the, of the Bible, like the, the Gospel of Thomas and Judas and Mary and so on and so forth? No. Gnosticism, those are Gnostic writings. Uh, it, was a, it was a faith revolving around secret knowledge and so on and so forth. I think it actually has is still alive and well today. Uh, many who claim to be Christians have, have this kind of view that you have to get a secret knowledge to to uh, understand who God is and maybe don't take the Bible too seriously as being enough, but rather are seeking this kind of secret knowledge, secret enlightenment, and so on and so forth. Gnosticism, that those books are written by Gnostics, it was dying out pretty quickly by 250 AD. I mean, that's 75 years before this council was taking place in 325. And so uh, I don't see how you can make a case for, for them there tackling. I mean, they do, they do come, they touch the subject of Gnosticism. They condemn it for the one last time. And from then on forth, you hear very little about it. And maybe that's because up until this point, up until uh, Emperor um, Emperor Constantine comes to power, the church is being persecuted. The church is underground. They're trying not to be killed for their faith. Um, they're willing to be killed for their faith, but they're not trying to be killed for their faith. And so uh, they don't really have an opportunity to get a council together like this, like where they can just take the all of the Christian church together and say, we condemn this teaching as unbiblical and as heretical and this is really uh, since emperor constantine uh, uplifted or you know made it illegal to persecute the christian church and crucify people and and uh, kill christians for their faith that's really the first time the church is free to get together and like condemn these things in unison and tackle some disagreements within the church that are very very important like the divinity of Jesus Christ. Anyways, so Gnosticism is dying out by 250 AD, and this is happening 75 years later. They do condemn Gnostic teachings, but then you don't really hear again from Gnosticism from there on forward. Now, um, there was no discussion in the Council of Nicaea about the Gospel of Judas, about the Gospel of Thomas, or about the Gospel of Mary, or any of that. Um, they were never discussing or voting on if this should be a part of scripture or if we should remove this out of scripture. And actually, Eusebius, when he talks about Arius being interrogated, he says what the authority was for his interrogation was the scriptures. For him to explain his position that Jesus was not God 
from the scriptures. And so if you just think about the implications of that, okay, he's saying the scriptures are what gives us the authority to teach. They are the ones that give us the revelation as to who God is. And if he is using the scriptures as the authority over Arius and trying to tell him to explain himself in light of the teaching of scripture, then you must conclude that they, before the Council of Nicaea happened, were in agreement as to what was a part of scripture and what was not a part of scripture. Um, but here's where a lot of people, they go nuts. Because the Council of Nicaea, when they hear about the discussing of the divinity of Jesus Christ, now, a lot of people say he never claimed to be he never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be divine. He was only made divine by his followers who wanted to worship him as a God. And Jesus never claimed to be God. First of all, that's just wrong. When you look at the scriptures and when you look at what Jesus says about himself, uh, when his disciples are worshiping him as their Lord and God, then that's pretty obvious. You know, if you're a first century Jew, that's a big no-no if that's not truly God, right? Um, was, uh, and, and by the way, he doesn't, he doesn't say, don't do this, you know, don't worship me as God, uh, like the other angels do. When, when people in scriptures bow before them and start worshiping them, they say, hey, 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 I'm just a messenger like you. I'm just a servant like you. Do not worship me. You don't see that when, when, uh, when the disciples of Jesus Christ start worshiping him as God. And then other things that Jesus says about himself. Now, was it there where the divinity of Christ was invented uh, or first introduced? Before this, was he just a good teacher? Was he just a, a prophet? And then by this council, they decided that no, he was not just a teacher. He was not just a prophet. We are going to worship him as God. Could that be true absolutely not that's not what we see in the council um the the view that jesus was god was in place a long time before this council is happening outside of the bible well in the bible you read that he is god even the prophecies concerning the coming messiah show that he is going to be god you talk about Jesus calling himself the good shepherd and you read Ezekiel 34. And what is God saying? I'm going to eliminate these bad shepherds of Israel and I myself will come and be their shepherd. I will be the good shepherd. And then Jesus comes along and he calls himself the good shepherd. That's a claim to divinity. If you read Ezekiel 34, for instance, uh, because back in the day, I mean, you think about this. What, what would Jesus say to claim to be God? Right. He's in a he's in a Roman context. The Romans are are overlords over there. Um, if he says, you know, I'm God. Well, there have been plenty of emperors that said that of themselves, too. I mean, there are plenty of gods to worship and plenty of people throughout history who have claimed to be God or demigods. Or, but he's not just trying to say that he is a God. He's saying, I am the God of the Jews. And so. When you think about that and you read the Gospels, you're like, okay, how would you communicate that idea? How would you uh, escape the fact that the Romans would not just view you as a God, but then make it clear to the people of Israel that you are their God, the one and only true and living God? Well, when you read sentences like, I am the good shepherd, when he says that, that's a claim to divinity. Uh, you see, every time they want to stone him to death, because of blasphemy, because he claims to be God, that's 
the sentences that preceded that they interpreted as him claiming divinity. So anyways, if you were thinking about this, we can, we can make a show later on about, about that. Um, yeah, so this is absolutely not what happened at the council of Nicaea outside of the Bible, which clearly teaches that Jesus is divine. The church fathers had written extensively about Jesus being God after the new Testament was written. Now, remember, the council... Man, this chair is so loud. I hope it's not being picked up by the mic all, all the time. Um, the council, it's happening in 325 AD. And I want to mention a few guys that came before this time. A few guys that came before 325 AD, and they all held the view that Jesus was God. Because many people will tell you, no one believed that Jesus was God until the Council of Nicaea. And that's just blatantly not true or completely ignorant of the history of the church fathers and their writings. So I'm going to give you this list, uh, just as you can pause and listen to the names and Google them and their writings to, to find this by yourself. But I want you to give you this, uh, this list of people that came before the Council who absolutely claimed that Jesus was God. So let's start with Polycarp. And all the dates that I'm about to give you, all the years from their birth to their death, is going to be A.D., after, after the coming of Christ. Uh, so Polycarp, from 69 to 155, he writes about, uh, about the divinity of Jesus Christ in his letter to the Philippians. Ignatius, born 50, died 117, mentioned it five times in his letter to the Ephesians, one time in his letter to the Romans, and one time in his letter to Smyrna, and one time in his letter to Polycarp. Justin Martyr, uh, born 100, died 165. In his communication with Tri Trifo, he mentioned it four times, and in his writings to defend the faith. Malito from Sardis, he dies around 180, uh, 180, Mentions it once in his writings. Irenaeus, Irenaeus from Lyon. Uh, he is born 130, dies 202. Mentioned it five times in his writing against heresy. Clement from Alexandria. He is born 140, dies 215. In his letters to the Gentiles, he mentioned it twice, that Jesus is in fact divine. Tertullian, born 150 to 225. He mentions, his, mentions it once in his writings about the soul, once in his writings uh, in defending the faith, and twice in his writings against praxis. And Hippolytus, uh, uh, he's born 170 to 235. He mentions it once in his writings against heresy, once in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, and once in his writing against Plato, and once in his writing against the heresies of Noetus. Um, and then you got Oregon, uh, Origin. I, I don't know how Americans would say that name. Oregon would be my uh, my saying of that. He's born 185 to 254. He mentions the divinity of Christ four times in the in in his writings, the Principes, and, and twice in Contra uh, Clesus, Cessus. I think I wrote that down wrong. Uh, I think it's Contra Cessus, not Clesus. Anyways, so that's a lot of guys 
who before the Council of Nicaea are obviously talking about the divinity of Jesus Christ from the first century. This is not an idea that evolves later on in, in the fourth century during the Council of Nicaea. This is something from the very first century that's being taught by the church and believed by the church. And to paint a picture for you, now I'm not, you know, Eusebius, some of his historical stuff, I think it's reliable and I think he mentions this. Uh, the chain of custody, uh, how these guys are all connected and how they all connect to the apostles. And so I'm, I take it with a grain of salt, but um, but here it is. Eusebius, I think it was, he, he mentions that, um, he, he mentions this theory that Hipp Hippolytus was the disciple of Irenaeus and, uh, from Lyon, who was himself a disciple of Polycarp, who was considered to be the disciple of John. Uh, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. So just the fact that we have writings from this period. Now imagine, for 300 years, when the church is starting, on and off, Christians are being killed, their families are being killed, churches are being persecuted, um, the writings of the Christian church, the scriptures, the, the extra biblical writings about Christianity are being burnt uh, by the persecutors, by the Romans and by the, the, the Jewish persecutors as well. Um, or, you know, they, they kind of go into the fade into the background and the Romans become the main persecutors of the, of the Christian church starting in like 70 AD. Um, but you think about this, on and off for 300 years, the church is being hunted, killed, persecuted. Their writings are being destroyed. The fact that we have any writings from this era is astonishing. The fact that we have manuscripts from the Bible from that era is astonishing considering just how much the Christians were hated by the most powerful government at that time. Um, so that's astonishing that we have not only biblical manuscripts, but also from all these guys writing during this period and their writings surviving so that we can see that today, like back in that era, back in the first, second and third century, they were writing about the divinity of Jesus Christ. That was not an idea created by the Council of Nicaea. But we today have this amazing collection of writings from this time. It's, it's just awesome to see. And, and, and it kind of like puts a nail into that coffin that somehow the divinity of Jesus Christ was made up at the Council of Nicaea. It's just ridiculous. It's either uh, someone just blatantly lying or historically ignorant about the facts that we have. So the question I received the other day sounded like this. If they, you know, and the assumption was the Council of Nicaea decided what was in the Bible and what was not. If they could decide what was in the Bible, uh, what's stopping someone else, like Joseph Smith in Mormonism, to add something to the Bible? Well, when we see the Council of Nicaea for what it actually really was, uh, we see that's not the case. They didn't decide what was considered to be scripture. The contents of the Bible was not decided by any council. The council used the Bible as their authority to get to the truth. They used the Bible to interrogate areas on his views of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Uh, there was no centralized figure or council that decided what book should be in the Bible and what book should not be in the Bible. And the church all over the world just recognized the word of God for when it came to them. 
That's awesome because you see the church in Europe and Asia and Africa, and they're receiving the, these letters from Paul and these gospels from, you know, Matthew and John and so on and so forth. And they, all these churches that have no connection to each other, they're not, you know, Skyping one another, checking what you have as your Bible and so on and so forth. You know, over the years, they just all come to the same conclusion that these writings are the scriptures. These writings are is is the word of god to us and so it really flips the image upside down it's not like someone uh centralized figure saying this is what is truth uh, it's really all of the christian church all over the place recognizing the truth of god when they see it so it's not like joseph smith having some uh, secret golden tablets that no one else can read or even see and he's writing the the, the things down that god is showing him and no one can no one can uh, claim that they that he's wrong, you know, but rather this is all of this, all of the churches and all of the continents realizing uh, what the scriptures are when they see them. In other words, it wasn't men deciding on what should what we would recognize as writings from God, but rather God through his church showing the church and the world what writings were his. And that's pretty awesome to me. Uh, but when we think through the issues as to who have the power to write the word of God, to give authority for the scriptures, uh, we read the Bible here in Ephesians 2, uh, 20, how Paul talks about the church and the foundations of the church. Let's read it in a little bit of a context. Let's read, you know, from 19 to 22. It says, so, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And here's what I want to highlight. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then he goes on. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what is he saying? The cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ. And the foundation of the church which is built on are the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, and the apostles, meaning the New Testament. So he's laying out this idea that um, that the continuation of the authority of the prophets in the Old Testament is not prophets in the New Testament. It's apostles in the New Testament. That they are the continuations of the authority. Like the prophets served in the Old Testament, the apostles are the new authority in the New Testament. And what does the Greek word apostle mean? It means to be sent out. That is to say, people who were personally sent out. Sorry, sorry about this personally sent out by Jesus Christ himself. Now, check out in Acts 2, 42 to 43, uh, what the early church does. That, you know, these people are coming to faith. The church is, you know, that Jesus has ascended into heaven. They have the mission to make disciple of all nations. And I find it very interesting that their response to that mission is to go out and plant churches everywhere they go. Just a hint there. Uh, we should give ourselves to the planting of churches now, Acts 2, 42 to 43, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
So who were the guys laying the foundation for the teachings of the church? Well, in verse 42, it tells us the apostles. The apostles are the one laying the foundation. And that's what the book of Acts is about. The work of the Holy Spirit, the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. I do not share in the opinion that many of my charismatic brothers and sisters claim that they read the book of Acts and they see the magnitude of the miracles and the frequency of the miracles and say, therefore, it should be this way in the church today. I think the purpose of the book of Acts is to show us the unique authority of these apostles in the church and why we should give them credence, why we should view them as reliable foundation to build the teaching of the church upon. Because God showed that these are the men that he chose by the magnitude of miracles that you know happened through them and also the frequency of the miracles that happened through them. So I, I do not share the opinion that because we read something in the, in the book of Acts, because we see it's frequent and because we see the magnitude of the miracles, therefore, we are supposed to act like that's for today. That's supposed to be for the church today. If we're not doing the same things, something is wrong. I do not share the opinion. The book of Acts is to share the story of the apostles and the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles to highlight their unique role in the story of the church and in human history and their unique role is highlighted by the fact you know that god does spectacular work works through them that only god can do through great magnitude and frequency like we've never seen in human history before or i would also claim even after this had taken place even books in the new testament mention other books in the new testament as a part of scripture that's one of the fascinating points because I remember being young and I was like, well, how do we know all of these are scripture? Did, did the apostles even consider themselves to be the writers of scripture? Or do we have we just claimed that they wrote scripture and they were really just writing letters? Uh, well, in Second Peter in ver, uh, chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, he says this, And you count the patience of your Lord as salvation, just as your, our beloved brother Paul, also write, uh, wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in um, them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen to that. It's <laughs> definitely some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. But here he goes on to say, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what is Peter saying there? He is saying the writings of Paul during his lifetime are considered to be scriptures, considered to be the word of God. Now what's, and Paul, let's check this out in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. He says this, uh, and many kind of you look over this fact, but he says this, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And that's in quotes. And here's another quote. The laborer deserves his wages. Now, when you go and check out where these quotes are from, because he's saying the scriptures say these things. And you see the two quotes there and you check out where they're from. Well, you see the first one is from Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, verse 4, which was obviously viewed as scripture. But the latter quote, 
It's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7. He views the Gospel of Luke as equal in authority to Deuteronomy. That's intense. That's a good sign right there that he viewed the Gospel of Luke as Scripture as well. So these guys didn't think like, oh, I'm just writing a few letters. And then after the fact, some people started considering them as Scripture. He's referring to the Gospel of Luke as a part of Scripture. Now to the question as to why can't I add to the Bible? Um, If Scripture is based on apostolic authority, we must ask, who is an apostle? I saw this meme the other day, and it was this guy with a weird face, like like that. And uh, the meme said, my face when I see someone's, someone has an apostle in their Facebook name. I've gotten a few ads like that from you know, people out there who claim to be apostles. Um, now, on one hand, I'd say this. On one hand, we're all apostles. On one hand, we're, we've all been sent out by the mission Um, Matthew 28, you know, 18 through 20 to go out into the world to make disciples. In one sense, we're all sent out to fulfill that mission. Um, And on the other hand, no one today is an apostle. Uh, Because especially when you take it to mean that Jesus is personally sending you out in his authority, then no one today is an apostle. Yeah, we've all been called generally by the mission that got left uh, before he ascended, but there's no one been sent out personally. And here's, here's why I'd say this confidently. Uh, I would say there, are only, there have only been 12 apostles in human history. Uh, capital A apostles. And then there are other people who are sent out, of course. You know, and, and the same word can be used by them, but not the, the same authority as the, the 12 apostles. Be, and the reason why I say this is because in Revelation... Uh, chapter 21, verse 14, we read, And the wall of the city had, this is talking about the new Jerusalem. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So in the new Jerusalem, there were 12 names of 12 apostles of the Lamb who were set out over the church to lay the foundations and the teaching of the church to give authority and legitimacy to other scriptures. Okay, so we have 12 names and we think, okay, Jesus had 12 disciples, but then one of them ended up betraying Jesus. Judas did not end up becoming a very great disciple. So who is the 12th guy? And you read the book of Acts and you get to chapter 1. And by the end of chapter 1, the guys are saying, hey, we've lost one. We need to replace the 12th spot. Who is going to take the place of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus? And I always found it weird when I was reading it because they, they kind of throw throw dice. You know, they're kind of like, uh, you know, they've got this guy, Justice and Matthias. They set out some some uh, requirements that they need to fulfill. They've been with Jesus during his ministry and so on and so forth. They witnessed the resurrection. Um, But they basically end up rolling the dice and they pick Matthias as the 12th guy who's going to take that spot uh, that Judas left vacant. Now, there are a few uh, reasons. Whoa, I just totally lost my place here. There are a few reasons... um, I don't 
like the idea that Matias may be the 12th guy. And I do realize that it kind of makes me sound like I just disagree with scripture, but I, I do it because, uh, do it because I think, you know, other places in the scripture make a case that, uh, maybe the 12th guy is, is not Matias, but someone else. The first reason I, I, I don't like this, uh, for one, we never hear from him ever again. This is the only place where Matthias appears. He's picked as the 12th apostle. His name never appears again. He doesn't write any of the New Testament, any of the scriptures that we know of. Um, you know, maybe, maybe Hebrews or some of the contested books where the authorship is not very known. But uh, at least right now, there's been no evidence uh, of what he did afterwards or what he said, what he wrote. And so that's one of the reasons why I don't like him as the 12th name. The second one is, well, the guys, the, the apostles are the one choosing him. And if, if the requirement for being a capital A apostle is that you are personally sent out, not just by anyone, but by Jesus Christ himself, then I'm not sure I like Matthias for, for that role. Because yes, he was chosen by someone and sent out by someone, but it wasn't Jesus Christ personally. It was the apostles. Um, but later in the book, you keep reading the book of Acts, and there's this character that pops up, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, and he's persecuting the church and he's killing the church. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ personally meets him on his journey to, to persecute the Christians. And he basically says, no, you're going to serve me now. I'm going to send you out as my messenger to the Gentiles. Um, and from that day, he goes out and he spreads the gospel. He plants churches and he ends up writing two thirds of the books in the New Testament. He is mentioned by other apostles in other writings in the New Testament. Uh, and the book of Acts, the latter half of it mainly starts revolving around the ministry of Paul. This guy, you know, Saul of Tarsus, who changed his name to Paul. And so he was personally sent out. It seems to me when I read that story, he, he's personally being sent out by jesus christ and i think that fits uh what the apostle means uh, being sent out by jesus christ so my theory is that the 12th name uh that takes the place of judas iscariot is not matthias but rather paul so to sum it all up it was not constantine or the council of nicaea that brought up for the first time the claim that Jesus Christ was divine or decided to, uh, you know, have authority to change scripture or write scripture uh, to fit their narrative. We can't, um, yeah, we, we can't say that. Like, if, if you're out there, there's no support for your view uh, from this perspective that the Council of Nicaea, the Emperor Constantine, he's the one who claimed that Jesus was divine. He's the one who changed scripture. Just imagine the magnitude of the mission. Like, okay, this guy decides that Jesus is divine. He's going to go and change all of scripture everywhere that is now found in, uh, in places in Africa, in places in Europe, in places in Asia, all over the world in churches. He's going to go and change all these manuscripts to fit with the ideas that they decided that Jesus Christ is uh, divine now and not just a good teacher. You know, like you start thinking about all the stuff that you need to do. It gets to be ridiculous and no one is supposed to write about this. You can't let future generations know that you change the scriptures and you add your stuff in there without leaving a mark and so on and so forth. Like it's just 
This idea is ridiculous. There's nothing to this idea. So please stop with this idea. Uh, sum it all up. Constantine did not have the authority to do that. And if he had authority to decide which one he wanted to be the main religion, it seems to me that he was very sympathetic to Arius and his followers. Uh, like I said earlier, I, I think I'm remembering correctly, he was baptized by Arius himself. He would allow uh, the Arian teachers to teach uh, his children and so on and so forth. So he was sympathetic to Arius and his followers. And if he wanted the Council of Nicaea to revolve around what he wanted Christianity to be, he would have outlawed anyone who disagreed with Arius and his followers. So there's no... There's nothing there to to give you the idea that that he somehow shaped the future of Christianity and made it what we believe today. Why can't we add to the Bible? Because the scriptures have said that Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation of the church is the prophets, Old Testament, and the apostles, New Testament. And today we have no capital A apostles living and as with any house you build, eventually the foundation needs to solidify so that you can build the rest of the building, right? So this foundation is not just open or liquidated forever. It has to solidify so that you can continue on to building the building on top of that foundation. And so it has been solidified. All of the apostles have died and the canon is closed. That's why we can be confident that what we have right now is the word of God to us and not expect other revelations to add something to this or so on and so forth. So I hope this was helpful. Man, if you like this content, you can help by, by sharing, by liking. The reason why I say that is because when you like, when you comment on something like this, whether you're listening to this on a podcast, you know, on your iTunes, you can rate there or you're watching this on Facebook or YouTube. Um, if you like, if you comment, if you share, uh, it all plays into the algorithm so that more people see this. So if this content was good and helpful to you, then you can help in that way. God bless you guys. Thank you for your time. This was way longer than I wanted it to be. Uh, but I hope it was helpful and not just me ranting and being pissed off. <laughs> God bless you guys. Uh, I got to go to a meeting here in 15 minutes. But God be with you and may he use you as his salt and light into the community that you're in. Thank you for watching or listening to The Stranded Baptist. If our episodes have been helpful to you or beneficial to you at all and you want to help us out, then there are a few ways you can do that. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can ring that notification bell if you want an email notification when we release videos. You can share our stuff on social media. Um, you can like on YouTube or comment and like on Facebook or comment or rate us on your podcast platform. I want to thank you for listening and thank you for giving us the time out of your day, out of your week uh, to listen to hopefully some beneficial uh, Christian material to build you up in the faith.